The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. Dr. Lee Hood and Dr. Nathan Price, these guys have been between them in the industry for like 100 years. And they know everything about what's going on, what you can do now, cutting edge technology on how to live longer, healthier, better. Doesn't matter what age you are, right now, feel better, look better, have less chance of disease. And what they describe is coming in 10 years or even earlier is amazing. We talk, and I really just wanted to understand from the point of view of like just a naive person, like what is the role of AI in bringing us closer to living great lives over the age of 100? What's immunotherapy? What's the role of NMN? If you remember my podcast with David Sinclair, he recommends this pill you could take NMN or NR, and I've been taking it, and these guys break it down what it does, talk about Alzheimer's, gene editing. I want to know, can I just inject like a baby stem cells in my body and, and be younger? They answer every stupid question I have, including Lee Hood. This guy studied actually with Richard Feynman. So I wanted to ask questions about Richard Feynman at the very end, and he has some good stories there. So without further ado, The Age of Scientific Wellness with Lee Hood and Nathan Price. And buy the book, by the way. It's a really great book, Age of Scientific Wellness. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. So both of you guys, Dr. Nathan Price, Dr. Lee Hood, what are your biological ages? The last I checked, mine was 10 years lower than my chronologic age, so 37 compared to 47. And mine was 15. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the, the joke we do often is, so So Lee's a, a real fitness guru for his age. So he's, what, 84 now, I think, and can do 100 push-ups in one set in the morning. And I always joke with him that that's not impressive because I could easily do it with 40 years more practice. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> which I think do... is probably probably unfair comparison. Wait, you could there. do 100 in one setting? I could, I, I could do a, maybe 50 in one setting, so I got to really catch up. You got plenty of time. Was there ever a time when you couldn't do 100 like, and you had to build up? Well, I, I started out uh, shortly. I was an athlete and in college I played football and did things like this and then I took up rock climbing and mountaineering and all of these things so I've always been active and I've always exercised but in more recent years I pushed from there was one time when I was doing 50 or 75 I pushed it up to 100 and uh you know once you get there until something happens, you're in good shape if you do it regularly. I always wonder, like, you know, there's all these people who spend like hours in the gym every day. What's what's enough for maintenance? I always push-ups are great because they exercise almost all your muscles, I think. And maybe there's other things like sit-ups that exercise yeah. other muscles. Yeah. But but just for maintenance, what do you think is a good number of push-ups per day to do and nothing else? Well, I'll tell you, if I had one thing to do, I walk a couple of miles a day. I think getting out and walking is really healthy and it, it's a good time to think. But I don't know, I would guess for most people, 50 push-ups a day. And uh, I do 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups, okay? Wow. And I exercise about 40 minutes a day. So that's- After that, after the push-ups and sit-ups. No, it, it, the push-ups and sit-ups are a part of the 40 minutes. I do a lot of other things too. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I'm impressed. So let me ask you this. So obviously a very important, you have a very unique, both of you guys, have, you have a very unique book in that you're combining aspects of wellness, nutrition, things like that, that are often neglected in the medical community with the latest cutting edge science and biotech about extending the quality of lifespan that we have, you know, so that you don't just live to an old age, you live with high quality of life. And, and there's a lot of things to discuss. But 
Well, tell me about first the wellness part. Like, why do doctors often neglect, and and or maybe they don't. Uh, you tell me. Why do you think they often neglect uh, uh, wellness advice? And what wellness advice is the most important? You want to take that, Nathan? Sure, I'm I'm happy to jump in on that. So one of the big things is just that the whole setup of medicine and from the start of when doctors are trained to how we organize the National Institutes of Health and research and everything like that is just totally centered on disease. So if you go through medical school, uh, the, there was a statistic and it, it came out, they, they do about one hour of nutrition education. And I don't mean one credit hour. I mean a solitary lecture on one day that they go through something like nutrition. So wellness is just not the focus of most doctors. There are a subset of doctors, of course, that, that, that will get into that. And so when you look at just the whole setup that we have, it's not oriented at all towards trying to keep you super healthy and stave off care. It's centered on care and then a bunch of either pharmaceuticals or different kinds of interventions. Now, one reason for that is the reason for everything, which is follow the money which is there's huge, if you have to take a pill every day to stay alive, you're worth a lot to the medical system. One of the big pushbacks when you go in on prevention into hospital systems or different groups is prevention is very useful for a person. It's actually not good for the financial bottom line of a lot of the institutions that we have. And so you really have to be your own advocate for what matters most to your health. And so that's one of the things we really push with, you know, we have these four P's that I'm sure Lee will talk about and getting people to participate and be engaged is a huge, huge part of that. If I'm truly following the money though, a big participant in the medical industry is the insurance industry and they presumably want prevention and wellness to be discussed. Only a little bit. So this is, this is what, this is a huge misnomer. So on the over the short run, once you've paid an insurance company money, yes, they're incentivized for prevention, but they only care for a short time period. And they'll tell you this, that if it's more than, some people will say three years on the long end, on the short end, one year, they don't care beyond that because you'll flip to someone else's program. The other thing to really understand about the insurance company macroscopically is you, the insurance industry makes a percentage of total healthcare spend. That's what they make. So every time healthcare gobbles up more of GDP, insurance makes more as an industry, not less. So they're really not at that. Is that because when people are sick, they get more concerned about paying for insurance? Or like, why is that? Well, just, just the insurance model, and then I'll let Lee jump in, but just to finish the thought, um, because an insurance model is always about trying to mitigate risk for the individual against their total exposure, right? Whether that's auto insurance or health insurance or whatever. So the size of the insurance industry is going to be set as some percentage roughly of whatever the size of that total risk is. So the higher the risk, i.e. the higher health insurance costs are, the more that the health insurance industry over the long run will make money. So that's why there's this, there's this subtlety there because in the short, right, once you've paid in the short run, they're incentivized, but in the long run, they are not. From a more conceptual point of view, when you think about the term health, you, you really think primarily about prevention of disease. You don't think about wellness because you accept wellness as a digital given that if you're not sick, you're well and you're okay. And of course, the real fact is most people are 20, exhibit 20% of their potential wellness, for example, and you can get much better by the appropriate data-driven actionable possibilities if you care them out. But it means you have to participate actively and you have to make a commitment to deciding the extent of wellness you'd like to see for yourself. And in the short term, when you're young and feel immortal, uh, it doesn't really matter. Where it does matter is as you age, the shape in which you are mentally and physically is enormously enhanced by a wellness that uh, lasts throughout most of your life and so forth, and, and is optimized. And this optimization of wellness is something doctors haven't the faintest idea about. 
in terms of what? Like in terms of nutrition or in terms of? Well, if you wanted to be well, weller, what would you do? What would your doctor tell you to do? He might tell you to eat better. He might tell you to exercise more. Yeah. He might tell you to uh, sleep more effectively, avoid stress. But those are all infinitely generic, and they generally don't lead for most people to solutions for improving wellness. And it's worth mentioning it's not all doctors, right? There's certainly a subset of doctors that have become more and more interested in this, more and more specialized in nutrition and wellness. And you do see them rising up that are more personalized medicine practices or functional medicine practices, the good ones, and you know those kind of things you see arising. Okay, let's take it the next step further. If we're going to do um, optimize health, and you know, I know from your book you get into that. You know, diagnosis is very important, and using the latest technologies for diagnosis so you can catch diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's and so on early. It's very important. So, what are some of the latest technologies, like cutting edge technologies for diagnosis? I would say one of the most important was the idea that emerged from Airville, that is uh, a company Nathan and I started in 2015, which lasted for four years. And the idea was to bring scientific or quantitative wellness to consumers. And over that time, we accrued about 5,000 consumers. And in following them over the four-year period of time, we uh, noted that there were about 100 70 that transitioned from wellness to a given chronic disease. And we initially looked at one of the first people who made the transition to stage four pancreatic cancer. And we looked at bloods that were drawn prior to her diagnosis. And what we were able to demonstrate is more than two years prior to her clinical diagnosis, she had five abnormal proteins, three of which mapped into disease perturbed networks characteristic of stage four pancreatic cancer. So this indicated there was a diagnostic that could be measured years before the disease. And the attractive idea is, is this a general observation? We looked at nine additional people who transitioned to cancer and saw for each of those nine proteins, again, signal transitions that existed one to four years before clinical diagnosis. So the idea is with these early diagnoses, we'll figure out how to reverse early stage disease when it's at its very simplest and hence reversible. And this, I think, is the most exciting single idea of new diagnosis. Like, let's say I go to the doctor every year for a checkup, or even further, let's say I go to the Mayo Clinic every year for a full round of checkups. Will they identify the stage four pancreatic cancer before it happens, or is this new uh, diagnosis that you you guys are doing? This is new, and it comes as a result of looking every six months at an individual's blood in analyzing, in the case of Aravel, 500 proteins and about 1,000 metabolites. And those were the markers that gave us the early diagnosis. And that's not done routinely by, at least at the time, any systems that existed at that time. There are a few people who are starting to begin to think about these kinds of things now. But the point is you have to do you have to generate the information before you can see the transitions. Right. So you basically, by doing these somewhat longitudinal studies, you're able to come up with statistics that previously people were not able to come up with, like the correlation between these proteins and showing up two or three years before whatever cancer it is, hundreds of cancers potentially. And how can I go get this diagnosis right now? So the way that some of this you can do right now, so for example, Grail, uh, the company Grail launched a test to detect 50 different cancers, which is from what are called liquid biopsies. So this is a very new technology. It's right along the lines of what Lee is talking about. And so these are starting to hit the marketplace. And it's going to be a huge transformation as we go forward too, because you have a lot of these legacy measurements that tend to be very small in number and they take large volumes of blood typically. So you've got to go in and do in-person blood draws and so forth. 
But a lot of these, what are called omics technologies, like Lee's talking about, these are all miniaturizable. They're able to be done uh, potentially at home. Some of them, regulatory, still require going to clinic, but technologically, you can do this. And so you're seeing these liquid biopsies emerge, and you're seeing, I think, more and more of these things that are going to be moving to an area where instead of checking like one gene for 3000 bucks in a hospital system, you can actually get your entire genome done for $100. There are certain details to the quality that you do in different scenarios. But by and large, we're going to be able to move from these tiny snapshots to these much larger, much more robust over time measures. And the world's just kind of churning through that right now as we figure out how to read all of this. You know, what about other diseases or like Alzheimer's or things like that? We think that for all chronic diseases, we'll be able to see these things early. And we're just beginning a series of studies to examine uh, several different major chronic diseases in that way, including Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's is a really interesting case. And we go through it in some detail in the book from a lot of work that you know we've done over the you know the past few years in particular. So there are certain measures that have been defined now where you can monitor, for example, amyloid uh, in the blood. So you can get that peripherally. Uh, we get into this. We don't view amyloid as causal in Alzheimer's. We think it's a good biomarker. It's a, pro- a byproduct of uh, different underlying processes. But the other thing to know is there's a whole bunch of risk factors for dementia that are changeable, that people can do something with. So you can, uh, exercise is a big one because it increases oxygen perfusion in your brain as you get older. Loss of oxygen is one of the big problems for neuronal death as you get older. So that's modifiable. There are also um, risk factors such as vitamin D, your glomular filtration rate, your inflammation, which you can measure with HSCRP or other markers. And there's about six or so that are known in the literature that are associated with higher risks of phosphatidylcholine, uh, so your choline uptake, which becomes rate limiting in these loss of energetic uh, path, uh, the ability to keep energy enough to keep neurons alive as that goes down. So you can actually monitor all those things as you go older, along with cognitive testing, and you can match all of those things. In fact, we're going to launch a, a brain health test from Thorne next year, or actually, I'm sorry, this year, that will go through all those modifiable factors so people can measure them, change them, and monitor over time. So there's there's all kinds of things that people can do uh, for dementias. And it's it's commonly repeated that there's nothing you can do about dementia. But what that actually means is that there's no really good drug for dementia. But there are lots of lifestyle steps that you can take that lower your risk over time. And another one other point we would make is something like black mold and continuous exposure for many people leads to Alzheimer's. And the simple cure there is to move out of your house, which is fully contaminated with black mold due to leaks in the roof and things like this, and get into an environment where the black mold doesn't exist. And quite often these people, if caught early enough, reverse themselves beautifully. So there are environmental exposures that lead to neurodegeneration too. You you mentioned in terms of like non-pharmaceutical solutions, you mentioned in, in your chapter on Alzheimer's about brain HQ, like exercising the brain. You talk about Tom Brady and, and what, what's the story there? Well, Michael Mersenich, who was a, a, a prize yeah, winning prize. Yeah. <laughs> neurologist for uh, showing brain plasticity, has invented an approach that can measure uh, digitally with um, basically with games Uh, 25 different cognitive features. And you can assess the state of those features. And if they're deficient, there are games that you can play to make up those deficiencies. And this even extends into people's 80s. You can continually improve cognitive performance uh, in the 80s or so, again, reflecting the enormous plasticity of the brain. So the bottom line is there's no reason in principle why you should have any cognitive deficiencies as you move into your 
90s and even your 100s taking into account this kind of assessment. Does, you know, the brain changes as we get older and, and are there any, you know, is there any type of or part of the brain that declines after a certain age or can you really Im- keep improving everything? And, and again, these, these, these brain HQ games that you mentioned, they work in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on, not just for older people. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And it's, it's probably worth saying about the, you know, about these that, you know, all these games are not kind of created equal. And one of the things that's really interesting about the Brain HQ and why we, we like this, what Mike has, has built, is what you're actually doing is it's just the equivalent of progressive overload. So in other words, it's going to, so most games you just sort of do, right, for interest's sake, and we do them all the time. What Brain HQ really does is it, it pushes you to your actual limit. Like, what's the fastest you can recognize an image? And it will push it to find exactly that limit. And then it will keep pushing you over and over again until you get better at doing that. Or how fast is your cognitive processing speed? And it will push you until you're at your action. So it feels like exercise in the sense that you have to push to your absolute limit and then you push beyond it. So it's really akin to muscle training in that sense. So that that's what we like about theirs. Whereas if you're not actually pushing those limits, it's not going to do the same thing. And that's what Mike has really shown in, I think, almost 200 papers now. It's, he's done a ton of work on this. 250 papers, yeah, with 10,000 people in clinical trials. And those benefits extend to not just performance in the games, but other areas of life? Absolutely. They extend to memory. He did a beautiful classic test where he took older drivers, those 60 and above, and he showed the reason they have enormous increased incidence of accidents and driving is A, you lose your reaction speed, and B, you lose your peripheral depth of field. And those are two things that can be trained and expanded at any stage by Brain HQ. And he did a clinical trial where he showed they cut down by almost a quarter the number of incidents of older accidents on the part of older drivers against a controlled set and everything. So. It can extend to children learning to read. They've done some really beautiful studies in that regard, too. So these push out and apply to many different aspects of your life. And now, I know I'm jumping around. I'm getting to specific things. You know, you don't mention a lot in here about CRISPR, the gene editing tool. You know, how important is it? particularly if you find you have a chronic disease later in age, is it going to be possible to modify genes to cure the illness? So in the long run, I think CRISPR is incredibly useful and incredibly powerful. It's like the old Spider-Man quote, right? With the great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so the problem here with CRISPR is just that because you are modifying DNA, it can have an overwhelmingly powerful effect And we don't understand all the aspects of biology and what all the unintended consequences are. So we are seeing early successes in things like, you know, if you if it's something specific in blood, right, where you can pull it out, modify a gene, and then put it back, like those kind of things can work. So it's got to be something that's sort of separable now. But as we get more and more sophisticated, and AI may actually come in and play a big role in us getting to be enough sophisticated as we go forward. CRISPR's long-term potential is, is of course, massive. And I'll leave, maybe you have a similar view on that or different. Yeah, what I would say is where CRISPR works beautifully is those uh, diseases where you have identified single gene deficiency. And there you can go in and you can repair the gene. And in principle, you've uh, cured the disease if you can, uh, the population can be expanded out with the normal gene and everything. Hence, you can do the modifications in stem cells, which is uh, a big area of exploration. So one limitation is most chronic diseases aren't single genes. They are multiple genes, and we don't even know what they are. So the idea of attacking chronic diseases is a long ways away And that will wait until we understand the uh, genetic basis that we can modify for those diseases. 
The second point is a technical point, and that is in doing CRISPR, you can modify other things around the gene, and that's the limitation of safety that has not yet been totally answered. And so we have to make sure that the whole procedure is safe. And the focus of the re-engineering is just on the variant gene you want to change at the point of variation. So the first issue is, okay, out of all the genes we have, the single gene diseases, you just have to flip a switch and you fix that one gene. If you could do it safely, the disease is gone. But if there's multiple genes that create a disease, not even a computer as big as the universe right now could figure out like which if if the, which multiple genes because there's so many genes that you'd have to like and combinations that you'd have to test. What I would say, I'd say it slightly differently. You have to understand all the genes that can contribute to the disease. Now, CRISPR can actually repair 10 genes at the same time in a particular stem cell. So it can repair a lot of different genes, but only if you know what you're repairing. And now, help me understand the stem cell thing. So they prepare it, they, they change these genes in, a, in some stem cells. I guess they in, you inject those stem cells in, and then how does the information, this is a naive question, but I just don't know the answer. How does the information get spread out and change all the genes in your body? So the easiest way to understand it is a work is being done primarily in looking at blood cells that have single gene deficiencies. So sickle cell anemia has a deficiency at a codon for valine 4 uh, mutation in hemoglobin. So what you want to be able to do is to change that particular codon, correct it in a stem cell that you can then inject back into the individual, which expands out to make all the different kinds of blood cells. And in doing so, they repopulate the uh, red blood cell population with repaired hemoglobin. Is that because stem cells send, like they tell all the older cells, hey, we're the new guys, this is what you need to do? No, no, stem cells actually differentiate and change into all the old guys, but they do so from a base where they've corrected the gene error, okay? So what if I just take the stem cells of a healthy fetus, okay, hypothetically, and inject it inside of me? Will it, re will it reset all my cells? So the answer would be no, because it would have antigens that would be destroyed, used to destroy those cells, unless you inject it in cells that were identical to your own genetic makeup, okay? So the transplantation problem would limit that. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. It is interesting to note, though, that if you take mice, right, which have been, you know, that are genetically identical, people do this. It sounds stupid, but they've actually done, one of the big, like, wow experiments over the last five years or so was they actually took an old mouse and a young mouse, and they connected their circulatory systems together, which is crazy, right? Crazy experiment. And so the young blood would go into the old mouse and then circulate back and forth. And the old mouse did get physiologically younger. Like it gets healthier. It's there's all these factors. So, you know, there have been all these explorations that yes, there are factors in, you know, at least it works in mice when this genetically identical. As Lee mentioned, there's all kinds of difficulties in translating that. But yeah, there are certain things in the blood that have an effect on rejuvenation. And people are still kind of sorting that out. Why can't humans do that right now? We know it works. Like, how, how come humans can't do it? Well, it's really the reasons that Lee, you want to go, Lee? It's really what you were bringing up. Again, it's just the, the fact of immunity. And you have to be able to do it with blood that's genetically, or stem cells, genetically uh, identical to your own. Yeah, your, your body will recognize some of that as foreign, right? Because it doesn't have your same DNA. And we have protections in our body against those kind of things. So can I make stem cells, though, that are genetically identical to me? Yeah. So the answer is, in principle, you could do that, yes. So it would be possible to think about injecting yourself with, quote, young stem cells. Yeah, and, I, and actually, if you just injected it with stem cells, that might be sufficient in and of itself. The, the reason the young mice probably 
um, revitalize the old mice is they send over stem cells that can differentiate and give new healthy blood cells that carry out the right functions. So, so again, why don't we, why isn't this like, maybe it is a main focus of research, but why, why aren't there more experiments happening with, with this with humans? Well, I think there are a lot of experiments going on that you haven't heard about. And, and I think there are technical issues that people have to be very careful about uh, in doing these experiments. But I project there will be something equivalent to what we've talked about available in the not too distant future. Tell me more about NMN and AAD plus boosters. And I've, I've, this was mentioned in David Sinclair's book, Lifespan. Um, Sergey Young's book on anti-aging also discusses this. What's the deal with with NMN? And you you speak quite a bit about this in your in your book. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to to talk about that. So so NAD boosters are one of the molecules that have been most interesting from a you know, health span and longevity standpoint. David Sinclair, of course, made you know this all kind of popularized this and, and made it available to a lot of people. There's a ton of research going on in this. By way of disclosure, I should mention that, you know, there are two molecules that are used a lot, NMN and NR, nicotinamide riboside. Thorn, you know, that I'm chief science officer of, does sell nicotinamide riboside. So I'll just put that as a disclosure. I, I bought from Thorn. Uh, so both NR and NMN hit pretty close to the same pathway. Uh, they're both shown to imp uh, to boost NAD. Uh, NR has more human data on it right now. There's a lot going into NMN right now, of course, because David's really pushing that uh, that one. Part of the discussion with NR and NMN comes between like which is closer to the target. So inside the cell, NR will become NMN, will become NAD roughly in the in the biochemical pathway. So from that standpoint, NMN is closer. The counter argument to that, which is the one I really believe in, is that outside the cell, NMN is a bigger molecule and it can't cross the cell membrane where NR can. So NMN essentially has to turn into NR to go into the cell to then turn back into NMN to become NAD. So I think those pathways are, are pretty similar, uh, but those are, but they're all aimed at the same thing basically, which is, and you can do NAD directly by in, uh, in some certain ways with intravenous injections or things like that. Because otherwise it's unstable if you if you try to take it as a pill or something. But basically, all those do is pool. And that's used in things like DNA repair. Uh, it's related to the sirtuins, which you know David again is famous for uh, work that he's done on that. The other person who's really a, a massive expert in uh, the nicotinamide riboside space uh, is Charles Brennan. And so there's a lot of people that are kind of working on on this as an area. The one thing I'll say is that we know that it that taking these supplements will increase NAD pool. What we don't yet know is whether or not they will increase human lifespan. We know that they've had effects in animal models. They've passed extensive safety trials. We know that they hit this really conserved mechanism, but we won't actually know for another you know, 10, 15 years, something like that, whether or not it really has an effect on lifespan, because we just live a long time as humans. It'll take us a while to be able to see for sure. What about using fragility as an asset, Nathan? Wouldn't you be able to demonstrate in a shorter period of time that people become less fragile by taking that drug? You can look at that over a shorter period of time. It's not exactly longevity, but yeah, you can look at frailty too. Yeah. Yeah, well, after taking NR or NMN, couldn't you test by seeing if biological age goes down? Yes, that, that you can look at. And one of the interesting things, this is just anecdote or a story, but it, it was interesting. When I went through Aerovale, we monitored for biological ages. People were going through this scientific wellness program that we did. And what we saw was that on average, uh, there was improvement in your biological age relative to chronologic age by about one year per year in the program. Women got better at one and a half years per year, and men got better at 0 0.8 years per year. So that's, that's just data. The anecdotal part I was going to say was that I was also part of that cohort and one of the interesting things was that my biological age improved by two and a half years per year each year that I was in that program for four years in a row. So it went down by a decade. And one of the things I was doing was taking 
and are. And that was one of the things I was doing that a lot of the other people weren't. So we are very interested in looking at biological age in these kind of studies. We're pulling together some, you know, some data around that uh, to dive into it in a little more, you know, in more detail across a large population. But you're exactly right. You can monitor biological age on NR or NMN or any of these kind of things, and you can see those associated changes. It's not equivalent to looking at longevity, as I was mentioning, but but you can track it in the short term that way. And tell me more about, you mentioned you, about immunotherapy and personalized therapy and, and so on. Can you describe that and its role in, in cancer and how people are using that? Sure. So the idea of using the immune system to attack cancer cells, which uh, have mutations that make them foreign, uh, has probably been around for 75 or more years. But it was only in the last uh, 10 to 15 years that the technologies for being able to use immunotherapy were really uh, very effective. And the one of the, there are a whole series of approaches to immunotherapy. For example, one can take T cells and redesign the receptors they use to recognize the cancer cells so that those T cells attack your cancer cells for sure. Mm. And this is a straightforward way of turning your own uh, very powerful T cells, which are very effective at killing cancer cells, into effective killers. There are also molecules that block the body's own T cell system from attacking cancer cells. And we now have molecules that can be given to these people that remove those blocks and allow the immune system to effectively go in and attack the cancer cell. So, and in fact, a, a really interesting form of kind of immunotherapy is the observations that Irv Weissman made with a molecule called CD47. And that's a molecule that has the ability, again, to block the effectiveness of the immune system in attacking and killing cancer cells through macrophages. And basically what Irv did that was transformational is made an antibody that blocked the CD47 activity. So again, it unharnessed the ability of the body's own macrophages uh, to specifically attack cancer cells. So there are a whole variety of different immunologic approaches you can take to cancer. And my feeling is in the end, once we work out the kinks and, and uh, subtleties and these immunologic approaches, they're going to turn out to be very general and very powerful for cancers. And if you can put these together with the very early detection of cancer, then you might be able to use immunotherapy as a really effective uh, therapeutic approach to remove cancer cells at the very earliest stages before they have a chance to proliferate, become more complicated and more effective. Yeah, this is kind of an incredible thing. And just to just to put it in a really simple way that I that I like that, you know, when when Irv talks about this, is just the notion that what you're doing is you essentially can design a program to give information to a cell and then it just puts up uh, an eat me flag. So essentially what you're doing is you can you can set a program, you can tell a cell that has a problem that's cancerous, put up a flag, eat me, your macrophages come and do that. And so it's incredibly flexible, it's incredibly powerful, and they you know, built you know, already, I think, a multi-billion dollar company off of it, developing therapies that hopefully are going to be around for all of us in the, as we go forward. What's really key about it is it can attack virtually any kind of cancer. That's, that's amazing. So, so let me ask you this, though. Why do I even need diagnosis? Why don't I just constantly have this therapy so that even if the slightest, earliest detection comes up, I, I, I can get rid of the cancer? Like It's it's because the therapy costs a lot of money hmm. and it does have side effects. Uh, what are the side effects? Well, immunologic cross-reactions that make the immune system less effective in other ways. I uh, I, I mean, there are a whole host of them. I couldn't name them all right now. So 
what's the role of AI in all of this? And can, can you explain AlphaFold? Because I've read about AlphaFold and I read about it in your book. I'm still trying to get my head around what it does. It's the software, obviously Google, it's related to AlphaZero and, and all those programs. What, is, what does AlphaFold do and what's that role in using AI to live longer? You know, a lot of people are aware of these AIs that you know, first we're able to beat the best chess champions and then beat the best Go champion and Alpha Full or Alpha Alpha Go and Alpha Go Zero. So basically what they applied was that same technology around reinforcement learning to the problem of protein folding. So protein folding is a really famous problem in biology and it's really fundamental to life. So for people that aren't aware, what that means is that you have this long strand of DNA, right, which is linear information. And then you have, um, you come in and you translate that into mRNAs, which is again, a linear string. And then those get translated, transcribed into mRNAs, those get translated into proteins. And when that happens, you're going from linear information to a three-dimensional molecule. So protein fold, and, and then that the three-dimensional shape of the protein is why it carries out its function. So if you have a metabolic enzyme that carries out some transformation, like metabolism of sugar to get energy to your cells, that is because of the shape of the protein. So if you can predict from a linear sequence of information the shape of the protein, that's a big step towards being able to predict the function of the protein. So in theory, if we can go from linear sequence to shape to function, you can now design in silico anything that you want in a living system. So, and there was this huge problem of that the folding problem of what a, what a shape a protein is going to take in a cell is really complicated. And researchers were trying to do that for decades with some success. There have been some big breakthroughs. David Baker at, at University of Washington made a, a ton of this progress. And so the first year, there's this competition called the CASP competition. They hold it every two years, and it determines who's the best person in the world or the best research group in the world or team in the world to solve this problem. And they do it in an unbiased way every year. So they took the alpha go algorithm and applied it to alpha fold. And the first year they enter, they win the whole competition. Hmm. And they win it by quite a, you know, pretty handily. And then two years later, they come in and they annihilate their previous record. And it's now within a, a tiny epsilon of as good as you can get the experimental measures. And because the experimental measures require you to crystallize proteins, which means that they're not exactly in the shape that they're in, in the cell, there's an argument within, you know, either now or in the very near future that the predictions might be better than the experimental measure, because at least you're predicting it as you believe it exists in the cell. And so you're within the noise already. So that was a stun. This is why this was the discovery of the year in science. It, that was a stunning breakthrough where you could now predict the shape of a protein with pretty high accuracy. Now, there's still a long way to go because proteins also change configuration and shape and they interact and we're still getting better at predicting those things and we have to go. So there's still a path ahead, but it was, uh, that, was, that was an impossible problem when I was in grad school. And now it's basically solved by these AIs by applying the same approach that we use to solve these games. A stunning breakthrough. And what does it mean for us? So it means that you could do uh, for example, designer drugs. So we find a particular target. We have to understand enough in the biology about what, but if we understand what's going on in the biology, we can say we need a protein of the following shape. Well, now you can design in silico a whole bunch of different linear sequences and then put them in cells and then you can make the shape that you want so that you can hit the target that you want. You know, we're not all the way there yet, but that is, that is the, the path we're going on. Uh, if you want to design, so if you want to design therapeutics, it'll be much faster. If you're, you know, designing vaccines, it'll be much faster. If you're designing, you know, whatever it is, uh, that is uh, a big, big part of the part of the puzzle. It's not everything, but it's it's a huge step. The the other thing is that many proteins work as multi-protein complexes, and understanding the their functioning, how they execute complicated kinds of instructions. It's necessary to know what their three-dimensional structures are and how those change in the course of photosynthesis or respiration or any of the complex 
uh, physiologic mechanisms you'd like to explain. So knowing the building block components and how they fit together gives us deep insights into the possibilities for mechanisms. You know, at, at this point, we know so much, like 10 years from now, what do you think the world looks like in terms of where we're at and in terms of wellness and longer lifespans, longer quality of lifespan, like things are moving exponentially, kind of like in this Moore's loss sort of way. So where do you see us in just a few years? Well, one of the uh, initiatives that I've started recently is a nonprofit called Phenome Health. And its major mission is to carry out, uh, in a sense, the second genome project called the Human Phenome Initiative. And phenomes are the longitudinal measurements we make of people to follow their health trajectories across their lifetime. And the phenome is essentially your appearance across that lifetime. So how do you change from a child to a young adult to a middle-aged person to an old person? And the things that catalyze those differences, the phenomic differences, are threefold your genome, your behavior, and your environment. They go together integratively to create you at a given instance in time. And we have a lot of ways to make those measurements, uh, analyzing blood proteins and blood metabolites, uh, looking at the gut microbiome, looking at digital health measurements for both body and for brain and so forth. But the important point is we did this in sort of a baby way with 5,000 people in Airville. But what we really need to be able to compellingly show the power of wellness and prevention is a million-person project over a 10-year period where we analyze these phenomics. And my guarantee is if we can execute this program as I described, we, one, will be able to unequivocally in 10 years show an enormous increase in quality of health care. Parenthetically, let me say the U.S. is near the bottom of the top 20 developed countries for health care, hmm. even though we spend four to five times as much money as the next closest wow. country does to us. And number two, we think over that 10-year period, will be able to demonstrate the savings of trillions of dollars in our current $4 trillion healthcare budget. Mm -hmm. And with those two drivers, increased quality and decreased costs, we're hoping that presents a compelling picture that will lead payers and providers, ultimately physicians and the healthcare society and regulators to realize that the future of wellness, the future of health has to be in scientific wellness and prevention. Mm. And if we could do that over the next 10 years, we'd be supposed to have the biggest revolution ever in the history of medicine. That is a switch from a disease-focused healthcare, which is rampant now, to a wellness and prevention mode of healthcare, which will transform the health of every individual so affect. And what we hope to be able to do is to use AI in two different ways to catalyze this revolution. One, to help us discover thousands of new powerful actionable possibilities for mediating wellness and prevention. And then number two, for delivering them effectively to physicians and ultimately their patients in a way that they can readily understand them and the basis on which these actionable possibilities have been constructed and so forth. So I think AI is going to play an enormous role, getting back to your original question some time ago, in our medicine of the future. Wow. So lots of things to look forward to. And you know, let me let me ask you, uh, Doctor Hood. I I was reading you studied with all these historic figures, Richard Feynman, 
Linus Pauling, you know, these guys were at, at Caltech back when you were hundreds of years ago or wherever it is. What's a, what's a Richard Feynman story? He's always fascinated me. So Richard Feynman, I think, was one of the most brilliant lecturers I've ever heard. He could take the most complex subject in physics and make it simple, crystal clear until you went home that night to work out the physics problems and you realized, gee, you didn't quite get everything he said in his uh, we were the first class that started on the very famous three-volume series of physics books that that really became classics. So we were the guinea pigs in which he tested out these kinds of ideas and everything. I think he was a model teacher in that he could take the most complex concepts and make them dirt simple and generally comprehensible to anyone. I mean, absolutely anyone. And I mean, he was certainly a model for how I hoped I sometime would be able to teach. But going through his book, his first set of volumes with him was a terrific experience, I'll say. I mean, the book evolved right in the classroom. You could see him thinking about things and new connections and all sorts of things. And in fact, his undergraduate classes had full professors that came and sat through the course with us. Wow. So he he really stood out. Oh, he, he stood out incredibly. Yeah. It's so interesting. Well, you guys, the age of scientific wellness, why the future of medicine is personalized, predictive, data-rich, and in your hands by Leroy Hood. Lee Hood here and and Nathan Price. And I appreciate this book so much. I'm fascinated with this topic. And you've answered so many of my completely naive questions. So I really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, James. It's our pleasure. Yeah. Thank you.